So our guest today is an extremely important person. Uh, he is just one of the guys that I look to and I go, man, I absolutely, I love that guy. He and his wife are just an example of what a Christian man and woman uh, should look like. And uh, I'm, it's privileged to call him uh, a friend. And uh, he's, he's just an awesome guy. We have Dr. John Seaman on the podcast today. It was amazing talking with him. Uh, he was in his car for this interview. So, um, you know, it, it cut out one time in the middle, but I was able to kind of edit that. But um, so it, it was it was awesome talking with him. He was on his way to a funeral. He was willing to, to fit us in there. And uh, it was amazing talking with him, hearing about um, past experiences that he has had on the mission field, um, hearing about past experiences that he has had um, and and uh, difficulties, and also at the same time, uh, discipleship opportunities that he's had. Uh, it was amazing to hear that. I did not know this, but he discipled one of the general superintendents for the Church of the Nazarene, and those guys are like the head honchos when it comes to the Nazarene doctrine, and so it was pretty pretty stinking cool to hear that. Um, but it's just amazing to talk with someone like this and to hear the stories about how they were sent, he and his wife were sent into a place where they never thought they would go, that they thought that they're going to be left behind, like family's going to be left behind. It's going to be impossible to try and connect and all these things, but they go there and God makes a way and gives them this family that's outside of their family. You know, obviously their family is back in the United States, but gives them this family over in Africa. And they become like their real family, that closeness. You know, when they would leave and have to go on deputation to come back and raise funds and things like that, they, they hated to go. They hated to be separated like that. And, you know, I think a lot of times, and I'm, I'm speaking for me as well, that we a lot of times get a little freaked out if God were to call us to something to that magnitude. And we look at it and go, well, there's no way. I am so not equipped to go and do that uh, and perform that task. And you know what? You're 110% right. You are not equipped to go and do that. But the sweet thing about it is, is that God does not call the equipped all the time, but he always equips the people he calls. So if God is calling you to something of that magnitude to go to Africa and leave your family behind and and to do missionary work or whatever it may be, it may be scary. I'll give that to you. That's kind of <laughs> hear about that. And you're like, uh, you want me to do what now? But because he is awesome, because he will not leave you, because um, he's a great comforter and, and he can he can fill those areas that you need filled uh, because he is that way he will make it okay he will somehow some way make it into something amazing because you're not going to be equipped to go and do something more than likely you're not going to be equipped to go over to a country that you don't necessarily speak the language that well or even if you are trained and things like that um, there's going to be areas where you're like I feel totally inadequate to do this position and you'll be right, <laughs> 110% right. But he is the one. He's the source. It doesn't come from you. See, it's not about the messenger. It's all about the message. So it's not about you. It's about the message of Jesus Christ that you will bring to your situation. And I'm thankful that I got this to have this interview with Dr. Seaman. Um and to hear about his past experiences and how he and his wife, Linda, um, allowed God to move in their life and use them as a tool and an instrument for the kingdom. Amazing, amazing interview. Uh, I absolutely enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, audio quality, it's kind of whatever, but he was in his car, so we'll give him that. But just amazing, amazing interview. Awesome guy, and so is his wife. Uh, we're thankful for them very much so. And they're now currently the, the district superintendent in Michigan. So, that being said, let's start the show. Yes. 
<laughs> you got me straight up tripping, boo. You dipping and dapping and don't know what's happening. They was grabbing hankies, waving blankies. They was running them aisles up in there. I respect your opinion, but you're wrong. joining us today uh i'm the one he's speaking of and let me tell you if my heart is bigger than my body i don't know how i walk around it, it's just unbelievable but today with us we have dr john seaman and we're very excited to have him on here thanks for joining us today i'm glad to nick um so uh you are currently driving right now in your yeah. car so yeah. Uh, we appreciate you taking what, the time. What else, what else would I be driving? Well, you I mean, you could be driving an airplane. I don't know. Yeah, I, well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not judging. I don't know what you drive. Uh, I know. So, but... That um, was rude of me. Yeah, I mean, jeez. <laughs> tell you what. So, um, well, uh, one of the things we like to do and find out is what, uh, what exactly is your current position that you do what what do you do uh that is that's ministry related okay okay uh, currently uh i'm serving as the uh, district superintendent of the michigan district in the church of the nazarene been doing this now for a little over uh, t- 10 years have service opportunities as well um i uh, serve on Olivet nazarene university's board of trustees i'm on the general board of the church of the nazarene and those are significant. One of the other significant roles I currently carry is I'm on the board of directors of the Children's AIDS Fund, which is an organization uh, based out of Washington, D.C., um, that uh, deals with the area of uh, trying to serve and help children uh, and families, children who are either affected or infected by HIV AIDS and that's a, a wonder that's a wonderful uh, a wonderful board to serve on uh, as I encounter all kinds of uh, of tremendous people Not bad. so that's my that's my current role that's yeah just a couple just just as, as a side thing but um, yeah. so um, as you're you're doing the the district superintendent you've been doing that for quite a while um i imagine that you're you see a lot of different stuff like that um if you were to let's say you were you could go back in time from when you were transitioning could because you were previously a missionary correct right for almost 30 years in the okay. french world okay where where exactly were you at well for uh uh, ten years, uh, we pioneered for the Church of the Nazarene, the French Antilles, and we lived uh, on the island of Martinique. Martinique is kind of like a, a state of France. Uh, in the French, they refer to it as a, as a department, and it, uh, it was a, a great assignment there, living in the Southern Caribbean. And then, uh, then we were asked to develop the French work on the Africa region for the Church of the Nazarene. And we lived in the uh, uh, Ivory Coast, which is more accurately called the Côte d'Ivoire, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, oversaw the development of our work in uh, all of West Africa and much of uh, French Central Africa. Interesting, a huge area of about uh, half a million square miles larger than all of the United States. So I was uh, traveling uh, an awful lot to as we oversaw new works and new starts uh, for our church in that part of africa wow that's that's pretty amazing now when when did you enter the the mission field because you you and your wife both went over there 
And yeah, one... we were, we're both graduates of Olivet Nazarene University. I then went to uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary and earned a, a couple of graduate degrees there. And uh, following that, uh, we went directly uh, to Martinique, really straight out of seminary. In fact, technically, my degrees were granted after I was on the field. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, so you hopped right uh, into it. Yeah, yeah, it was truly an unusual uh, track that we had. Now, I've heard your, your lovely wife speak before. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest. She's one, sitting here beside me, by the way. She is. Well, I'm, yeah. I, I heard her speak one time, and she had said something that was extremely profound to me um, and, and my wife. And, um, and it's, it's stuck with us both, and I would imagine a lot of, a lot of people. But what I heard her say was that you were called to the mission field that she didn't necessarily feel called to the mission field, but she felt called to be your wife. And that has that stuck with a, me. She was actually, she was actually sharing the story of my mother. Yeah. Um, my dad was a medical missionary. In fact, even though I grew up in Chicago, I was born in Manzini's Swaziland. Okay. And, uh, and it was my mother's story that she was sharing at that point where my father had this very strong missionary call and uh, she did not, but she knew that her call uh, was to be his wife, his supporter. And uh, therefore, if uh, his call was to go to Africa, in his case, that was hers as well because her assignment was him. And now that, that impacted us as well. Yeah. Linda's, Linda's story is really more of one where I, I knew from when I was young, even interestingly from before I had, before I got saved, um, I knew that when that did happen, what God's trajectory for me was that he wanted me to be a missionary and it was never an issue for me. It was something I actually embraced, but for Linda, it was another deal. Uh, she wrestled with the call to be a missionary. Sure. Because she didn't want to, uh, you know, she said she didn't play the piano, and, and as it ended up, that didn't matter. No one in anywhere where we lived did either. So, <laughs> but she didn't play the piano. She didn't like bugs, and more significantly, she was very much a homebody in the sense of coming from a very tight knit family. And so her dream was to be a a wonderful uh, Nazarene and to serve faithfully in the local church, even be NMI president, and uh, and live a few blocks from, from her mom and dad. She didn't want to go thousands of miles away, halfway around the world. Yeah, and be so stuck with really, you all that time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she, really had a, she really battled and wrestled with God, and in yeah. fact, it was part of that whole process that finally led to her being sanctified, was... Uh, one day she was, in her devotions, was, was reading the passage of Scripture that says, if you love father, mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Yeah. And it was at that point where, in, in effect, God was saying to her, well, Linda, you know, you can, you can live what you want, uh, and you can serve where you will, but you'll always, you'll always know that you settled for second best. And, and it was then that, uh, that she fell on her face before God and said yes to the call of missions. And interestingly, as a postscript then on that uh, was the, um, uh, the fact that, you know, when she left for the first time to head to the French Caribbean, uh, she assumed that she would spend the next 40 years of her life grieving you know, over being away from family and loved ones and all of that. Sure. But uh, but it wasn't too very long that she discovered God gave her a new family yeah. and new loved ones. And when we were called after 10 years to leave the French Caribbean and go to French Africa, uh, the weeping and aching of her heart was as great as it was when she left her folks the first time. Sure. And, uh, and in a certain way, when we were called by God 
in what was probably the mo one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult decision we've made, to leave what had become our comfort zone and to return to the United States to serve in this present capacity, the grief was equally great. Oh, yeah. As we said goodbye to missionaries that we led and to uh, African church leaders that we had helped shape and, and form. And the same grief was there. What she discovered was the great joy that God gives um, wherever he places us. A good friend of ours who was the wife of a Kansas City District Superintendent many years ago once reminded us when we were going through some difficult times early in our missionary career, she wrote and said, remember kids, home is in the center of God's will, mm, wherever yeah. that might be. Yeah. And so that's what it's been. So our, our missionary career for Linda, who battled being a missionary, discovered great gifts and great influence, great joy, great love. It's amazing, too, because I think a lot of times people think about that and they think that one of the hardest things to get past is I'm leaving loved ones behind. I'm leaving family yeah. behind. And it's it's interesting to hear that because you do uh, end up building a bond that is, yep. is just like family. Um, yeah. And you, exactly you right. agonize through things and you, you get wrestle with things the same as you would with yep. family over there. That's exactly right. So, well, that's awesome. Um what are some of the things I, we, we were talking the other day and what are some of the things that you have found that were just um, God moved on the mission field where there was a situation that was impossible and somehow God stepped in and made a way? Oh, wow. I, it, I don't even know how to define the what on that kind of thing. Um because we've seen God work in so many ways. Um, we lived in, let me see, how do I say it? We lived in some very dangerous areas. Yeah. And, and uh, how we were uh, delivered in that. Um, uh, how we um, went through some crises physically uh, that, you know, that were near-death kinds of things. But then we saw people come to the Lord whose lives themselves, you know, at, at this point in my life, uh, you know, we were nearly 30 years on the mission field before we assumed this position. We've been back here now 10 or 12 years. And so now we're, we have the long view as we look back and we look at times that were so very difficult um, and, uh, and agonizing and where it seemed like nothing was happening or church wasn't growing, but we were able to impact and influence and help shape this, this young person, this young leader. And now we look back and they have emerged into, uh, roles and leadership response in the church in Africa and are making a profound impact where in some places we're seeing exponential growth. The, the country of Benin, for example, has exploded. It's one of the best kept secrets, but, but tens of thousands of folks have come to the Lord through the leadership of a, of a great leader named uh, Moise Tumudagu, who was saved in the Cote d'Ivoire and we helped shape and, and form. And, uh, great leaders. The, the guy who, uh, one of the guys that I was able to influence when I first arrived on the field was a young pastor in Cape Verde. And I knew this guy was extraordinary. And I used him to help spy out uh, a Portuguese country uh, there in West Africa. And sure. then later on, he became a field director. And, and I, I was asked about him, do you think this guy do it and I had gotten to know him very well obviously I said can he do it he's tremendous his leadership began to grow and develop and actually when I came back uh, to the United States for this assignment he was then given my assignment there in uh, in West Africa oh that's and cool his name was Eugenio Duarte who today is a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene and just and to know that I had an influence on his life, these are powerful um, points. Uh, 
how we got into places is, is another way. We arrived in the Cote d'Ivoire, since most of your people are probably English speakers, I'll use the English name, though technically it's supposed to be Cote d'Ivoire, but Ivory Coast. Yeah. We were there all excited. We didn't know a soul, literally. The nearest Nazarene was probably 7,000 miles away. Uh, there were no holiness churches, uh, as we understand holiness, at work in that area. So we went in, I mean, with, with nothing and with great hopes of starting the church. Literally just before we arrived, because there'd been some strange religious organizations, uh, not just quasi-Christian, but quasi-Muslim, quasi-this and quasi-that, yeah. the, uh, the uh, wise uh, president of the country, named Hufwe Bwenyi, a true African statesman, um, he declared there will be no new churches, no oh. new religious organizations, rather, that we will permit at this time. So here we, we've just landed, and, uh, and, and we're not allowed to do anything. Well, what that did, that pushed us to really um, expand our strategy in terms of spreading out throughout West Africa, where the church did not exist anywhere in West Africa, our church. And, uh, but it pushed us to get into Senegal and to get into Liberia and into Ghana and Nigeria are earlier than expected. And as a result, we've seen tremendous uh, things happening in all of those countries. Today, the um, uh, field strategy coordinator, that's the role I had for West Africa, yeah. is a Senegalese guy by the name of uh, uh, Danny Gomis. The... Um, the area director for the English-speaking countries of West Africa is a guy named Daniel Johnson from Monrovia, Liberia. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, and this stuff happened sooner than we were expecting because we thought, well, we were going to focus on the Ivory Coast. Yeah, we weren't able to. Well, finally, the, the doors opened up for, the, for us to function in the uh, Ivory Coast and the leadership there and the development there um, is, one, is a, perhaps the strongest in many ways with strong leaders, and it needed to be that way because in 1999, war broke out, the Civil War broke out yeah. in the Ivory Coast, and yeah. it was very scary. We were, our missionary team was all evacuated, I guess, uh, three times. Uh, during that period, when I had the last to leave and come back in and have to evacuate again and and, uh, and all of that. So finally, when we had to pull out permanently our missionary presence, the Nazarene leadership, uh, the Ivoirian leadership was so strong, we didn't have the slightest worry about the church moving on and being effective and making a dynamic transformational change uh, there in, in that country. And that was, that was the case. In some ways, the best place to have had a civil war, if it was going to mean the missionaries had to leave, was the Ivory Coast, because <laughs> our leadership was so strong, yeah. not only in their vision, but in their theology and in their experience of uh, salvation and entire sanctification. So I, I, I don't know if that answers everything. It just some of the stuff but um it's interesting too uh, i mean it, probably at the time it, there was a frustration I, I would assume that occurred but a lot of times when you take a step back and you look at it now like you said that was if there was if there was to be a civil war somewhere that was the best place to have it um just yeah. because of the leadership but probably at the time it, there was frustration and stuff going on because you're going, man, why? I mean, we have to keep getting pulled out of here and, you know, oh, things like that. That, but... that is exactly right. And it was deeply troubling. And, and the hearts of the missionary team were broken. And, and the hearts of our uh, Ivoirian leaders were anxious and, and all of that. You know, there are a couple of humorous stories. Well, I think they're humorous, but I'm getting older. Uh, one 
One was our kids, you know, they went to school there, which is a of about three million people. Even though I traveled all over, Linda was settled there in the city, and the kids, and they went to school there, went to the international school. Well, outside the city was a military base, and in the area where we lived was, you know, police uh, training center and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as the war was breaking out, you know, if we would hear the uh, sounds of gun shooting and AK-47s blasting and mortar shells exploding and all that, the kids would wake up and it was like a snow day. Because they knew, well, there'll be no school today. So they turned over and went back to sleep <laughs> on Tuesday and, uh, and all of that. In fact, uh, when the war was first starting, it was around the, the, the Christmas time. It was December of 1999. And we were actually, our family was over visiting uh, uh, in the home of a missionary couple uh, with the Navigators Missionary Organization mm -hmm. and their kids and another missionary family and another missionary family. We were all there uh, celebrating in their, in their yard, uh, and we were kind of reenacting the, uh, the Christmas story. And, uh, and, for example, I played the role of a camel and, uh, you know, walking along, and one of the kids was a white, uh, or maybe I was, uh, yeah, crawling along, I should say, on all fours, with one of the kids, a wise man, uh, one of the wise men sitting on my shoulders yeah. as we went along. And uh, we're hearing this gunfire all around, thinking it's just, uh, uh, you know, just over at the firing range in the, in the police academy down the block. But it turns out it's actually rebels and soldiers shooting back and forth at one another. And I do know, as you know, bullets flying through the air and we were at risk and didn't realize it until a call from the American Embassy said to make sure we're all safe inside our homes and uh, and all of that. But, but, you know, we didn't even know enough to be afraid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we just went about our, went about our task. So like, sir, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm, I'm being a camel. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you might want to think about getting inside or you're going to be a shot camel, so. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that's the truth. You don't want people to think a camel. I, I could see the obituary. Yeah. That, would, that would not have been very, very good. No, hopefully they dressed that one up. Um, yeah. Okay, so when when you were on the mission field and then you transitioned back into the states, what were some of the yeah. uh, like difficulties or things that you kind of had to overcome? Both of you guys had to overcome when you transitioned from you know over in Africa to coming back to the United States. Yeah, it, it was it, for me. It was significant. I'm not. I think maybe less so for Linda, um, but for me, it was very. Theologically, we, re, we refer to what we call re-entry shock. Yeah. Uh, some people call it reverse. I don't think that's the right physiological term. I think re-entry shock is uh, is more correct. It refers to those who have been living outside their country of origin for a long time and re-enter that culture. And it kind of catches you by surprise. Because even when we would be stateside and our furloughs or home assignments were usually quite short, and even when we were stateside, our focus was on our ministry, the work. We were going around telling people about what God was doing uh, in other in the area of the world where we lived. And so we weren't even thinking about being in the United States even when we were. Well, now that we come back, we have to try to adjust our mindset, and it's very difficult. Someone indicated that uh, working through re-entry shock takes six or seven years before you're really reacclimated and comfortable in your uh, in your context, your new context. And I found that in my case to be very true. It, it was um, it was difficult, you know, uh, as a as a, a leader in the denomination. I hadn't been reading the kinds of things uh, 
that uh, my colleague district superintendents were because my ministry contact was so significant African and stuff that was germane to the there not you know I didn't read the leadership magazine or was uh, dealing with the stuff that folks deal with here and that was uh, that was difficult in making uh, the adjustment and you know, it was almost a head scratcher why would this district elect me at their district assembly I wasn't even from Michigan you know my home was Chicago yeah. and, uh, and and yet I was elected at the district assembly so it wasn't even you know a son of the soil and so that was it was it was quite difficult in fact praying through on it took me several days uh, three days uh, of anguish before God not never battling with saying yes or no but battling over trying to discern you know my my ex- expertise my experience uh, my graduate degrees were all focused on um, on missiological issues and on cross culture and and all of that kind of thing and all of a sudden I'm taken from what you know the African bush had become more comfortable to me than anywhere and now I'm, I'm pulled back into a context that is totally different uh, from the one in which I lived and it took quite a while uh, really to get comfortable in that um, I, I, I do think maybe, and I still, you know, God hasn't decided to tell me all the reasons why he wanted to take me from everything I knew and understood and was passionate about into an alien kind of environment that uh, is the upper Midwest and, and Michigan. Um, but it, it could be that perhaps uh, he wanted you know, uh, the district superintendent would be one who could bring a a broader um, missional perspective uh, that would come from the mind of a missiologist. Not that I'm any more gifted or anything, but maybe he wanted that kind of thing. I, perhaps in the kinds of um, pastors that would come to our district as a result of my uh, being here and working with them and, and finding them and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was um, it was not at all it was not at all easy uh, uh, for me. I've heard that before. It was, it when, was, when you come back, you look at you look at certain things that um, Americans take for granted. Um, yeah, and different different just different things, but stuff where it's just like, why would you do that? You know, it's wasteful or yeah. whatever it may be. Um, yeah. But I've definitely... No, you're, you're right. And, and so I scratched my eye felt a little bit like Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's like I, I, like I, uh, I, I went to, I went to, to, to sleep in 1976, and I, I woke up nearly 30 years later, and I looked around and I didn't recognize anything. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You, you get, I mean, the culture of the United States and certainly the central states uh, of 1976 is quite radically different, uh, <laughs> you know, today uh, than, it, than it was when, when I left. And so, you know, working through all of those kinds of things, um, you know, so that it, it, was, it was not difficult. I mean, it was difficult. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, I've talked with missionaries. Oh, hey, Nick, Nick, yeah. one, one more thing related yeah. to leaving that. You know, one of our our desires is to see the uh, indigenous church um, grow and develop and the leaders grow and develop and take responsibilities and broader and broader responsibilities. And we've seen things going along very well, but, um, and, and I was certainly of a mindset uh, to be able to say, to lay down my responsibility, lay them on the shoulders of uh, an African leader and all of that and take a lesser role uh, there on the field, teaching or something like that and being under authority of that person. 
but I lived in a tribal environment. Yeah, yeah. And and the tribal environment has a chief, and you're chief until you die. And so even if I would have done that, but remained on the scene, even though by title someone else was the chief, since I was the pioneer missionary, I and was involved in giving guidance and oversight into, into the starting of the church, of our church, in these different areas, there is no way in the world I would have been perceived by the people of the church as anything but chief, even if I swore up and down I was not the chief, but that so-and-so was. Yeah. And so in, in some ways, for the church to move effectively forward, to be the kind, to make the kind of impact it needed to make, to grow the way it needed to grow, to be the the uh, transforming agent it needed to be, in some ways, uh, you know, it's hard to say, but the, it's the truth, I probably needed to be out of the picture. I needed to be removed from that, regardless of how much I loved and cared for the people and those places. And so the Lord and this might be the main reason why the Lord brought me out of that True. Uh, was for the sake that it could be the church it needed to be. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, you have, sometimes you'll have some of these young leaders that need to step into a ministry role that is above where they're at, but they can't do that because you have people that have been there for a while. And it's not that either, either person is doing anything wrong but you can't get experience unless you get experience. That's exactly right. So that's exactly right. And at the top of my of my list was seeing uh, African leadership shaped and formed and taking its leadership responsibilities. Yeah, it. And that could only happen if I were gone. Now, other missionaries then could come but they would not be perceived in the way that, that uh, I w- would have been perceived. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, you know, I've talked with, and maybe you can speak to this, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you still have connections over there. Um, a lot of times, you mentioned the, the one country that just seems to be taken off, but a lot of times I think in the States... Um, we are perceived, and at least this is what I've been told by missionaries that I've talked with, because uh, I always try to pick their brain about the American church. But uh, from what I've heard, uh, how they perceive us is that the American church has kind of lost its fire. Because if you look over, you look over in Africa and in different regions of the world, um, things are taken off. And it's it's this thing where it's almost like, and, and this is my feeble attempt at trying to figure it out, <laughs> what little knowledge I have, but I, based on what I can see, they understand truly what faith is and what need is, and I don't I don't think we understand what it is over here. So if you were to you tell know, someone I, they need Jesus, the, over there they get it because they know what need is, but over here we have no concept. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's true. It's, to me, though, it's both yes and it's both yes and no. Okay. Um, about it, you know, in the areas of Africa where we were, we were dealing with folks in deep poverty. They truly had nothing until they met Jesus, and then they didn't need anything. I mean, I'm not talking materially. But they had him. Yeah. And so there was an eagerness. But that's not untypical of a first generation believer. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, there's an excitement and all of that in a first generation believer. Well, you get to the United States and even within our own, own church, the Church of the Nazarene, we can look now to, let's see. My grandchildren are sixth generation Nazarene, and, and there can be a complacency 
And then the material wealth uh, in this country is, I think, all too often folks uh, folks are satisfied. You know, they're just fine because they have everything they need. They've got the money they need. Maybe they're not putting it away for retirement, but really right now they've got all that they need. And, and Jesus doesn't really work in the equation, even in churches. Yeah. They do everything by measuring, and we do need to measure the cost, but they do everything by saying, well, do we have the means? Are we going to be able to do this? Do we have the funding or the potential funding? And, and if they don't, they say, well, it can't be done. Instead of being people who truly exercise faith. However, having said that, I've also discovered, and especially in, in the, the younger generation, those in their 30s and 20s, who have a fire in their gut that is exciting for me as a missiologist, a missionary, to see, and, and that's found here in this United States and within our church. Many people are still coming to God. We forget that. Now, we need to do a better job on closing the back door of people walking. But we are seeing lots of people getting saved. We're seeing some very exciting, deeply committed uh, young people who are making a, a profound impact. You know, just every there are five couples, I believe, and, and some singles who are involved in this whole Reach 77 thing in the city of Chicago, every single one is bivocational. Yeah. They're there because Jesus called them to it, and and not because it's an easy deal or that they're going to get a great in, in, income. If they're interested in the kingdom and building the kingdom, and among those who have had not much chance, and, and we live in a world today where you know your generation and younger, there are lots of folks who don't have a clue uh, about anything in Scripture. They don't know the Bible stories that yeah. we all just naturally knew when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, but there are many now, you know, they, I don't know if you're still doing it, but you remember a football game, the guy would hold up a sign, John 3.16? Well, back when that started, most people knew what John 3.16 was. Yeah. For a lot of younger people today, they see that and they go, what in the world is that all about? Yeah. They don't have a clue that it's even a biblical citation. <laughs> but they're the ones with the great need and, frankly, um, a great response. Yeah. If there's something about the younger generation, I'm speaking especially of those under 40, um, and, and, and certainly the millennials, there, there, there is a hunger um, for spiritual truth and for the authentic. They're, they're sick and tired of churches that uh, do not seem to have a passion for the lost, for the broken, for the great needs. They're yeah. sick and tired of, uh, of people who call themselves Christians but don't look at all like Jesus and who live lives that are unbecoming the name of Christ. What they're looking for is something truly authentic that is truly significant that is not that, that, that is not like the world around them. And that's, that's why I think this is the day for the Church of the Nazarene because the biblical message of holiness of heart, if it's anything at all, it's authentic. It calls for genuine transformation God, through the Holy Spirit himself, does as he cleanses our hearts and purifies our hearts and makes us men and women who are different, not odd, but different in a positive, dynamic way that is high in integrity and uh, in, its, in its reflection of God. I think it's that, that says, you know, you don't have to wallow until you die. You can live truly victorious lives in Christ now and be empowered as well as having your hearts made truly pure and live a, a life that reaches out to those who are, are the most lost, the most needy, the most broken. It, it's to me the kind of thing that your generation and, and younger 
would respond to so very positively. Well, I'm very excited about our church and about the message of holiness that we uh, proclaim as our banner message. Absolutely. This well, and day. two, I would say this that to be for, for non-believers and believers. Yeah. Non-believers are looking for authenticity yeah. when it comes to a church, That's you know. Exactly right. Oh, you, you proclaim to be a Christian, but I see you Monday through Friday, and you don't live what you yeah. talk about on Sunday. That's right. And, and so and, because and, and, they don't, then why, why would that, I go to your church? Yeah, that's why it's an especially winsome, attractive message um, to those who don't know Christ, because they, they've seen something that just doesn't line up. Yeah. And, 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 they, and they gravitate to and respond to what they see. That's the real deal. That's the whole thing of some people are Christians because they've met a believer, and some people aren't Christians because they've met a believer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, I, I think authenticity a lot of times, and I, you're right, my, my generation and younger especially uh, are, you know, we, we're tired of you saying one thing and then we see you live another way throughout the week. Um, you yeah. know, and I mean with the modern day technology and stuff, we see what you're putting on Facebook, but then we also... We also see you when you go out and hang out and stuff like that, or vice versa. And yeah. so it's just, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, well, if you're not going to be real with me, then I'm going to go someplace that will, or I'm not going to go at all. Yeah. You know, if that's, yeah. if you're living how Jesus wants you to live and you're doing whatever yeah. you want to do, well, then so can I. Yeah. Um, which is not the case, obviously, but, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, that's very true. Very, very, very true. Um, yeah. So, okay, if you could go back, let's say you can go back however many years to when you're first getting into ministry, what would be some advice that you would give yourself? If you could go back and, and tell yourself something to, from the very beginning that you're, you, I'm called to ministry. I know I, I you even I even know it, I'm supposed to be a missionary. What would you give some advice? What, what would be some advice you would give yourself? Um, you know, I don't think I have anything that is particularly astute. It's just really true, and, and it is that you just must uh, keep your your eyes fully focused on Christ alone. Uh, that there are going to be very difficult things, you know. Uh, we, we, that you're going to go through in life. Sometimes there are going to be setbacks. That there'll be disappointments, even by people you admire. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we're not always privy to all the details about decisions that uh, are made that even might affect us in our work. Um, but we have to keep our focus on Christ, and you have to be people of prayer. Uh, we have to be people of prayer because um, um, if, if, if you're not, you're in trouble. Yeah, Oswald Chambers reminds us that uh, um, prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Mm, yeah. And I think that's something that's, that's very important for us to remember as we go into the ministry. We might never have the biggest church or be the most famous missionary. We might be we might be lost in the in in, in some remote place in in Michigan or some remote place in in uh, the Ivory Coast that no one will ever hear about us or know anything about us. But who cares? Yeah. Who cares? All that's important is being obedient to the Lord, to being faithful to His call. And don't don't worry if uh, if other people uh, get talked about, or praised, and uh, and and all of that kind of thing. And, and I know there's some other things I guess that I would I would talk about. Recognize that ministry is not easy. That sometimes you're going to get blamed for things. People are going to say things about you that hurt. But we're not. We're not, you know, <laughs> we're sanctified. We're dead. We've died to self. 
And mm-hmm. so, you know, how can you earn a pet ban? So we, we, we live in such a way that all of that doesn't matter. What matters is, is what I am doing today, pleasing to Christ, am I walking faithfully in obedience to what he wants me to do right now? Because if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight, because if we're doing it for us, if we're doing it for people, if we're doing it for titles, all of that can go away. Oh my yes, and it does. Yeah, <laughs> it does in the blink of an you eye. Know. Yeah. You know, there's another issue along these lines as I reflect on it is. Um, I think I would urge them to build and remember the stone altars. You remember when the children of Israel crossed the river? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a guy from each one of the tribes grabbed a big rock from the bed of the, the river. And when they got to the other side, they built a stone altar. It's a remote kind of place. Yeah. Why did they do that? Well, we get the story that years later as a dad would be walking by that with his kids, they would see that stone altar in a strange place, and they'd say, Dad, why why do we have an altar there? Yeah. And then he would recall the story and say, because that reminds us this is what God did. And we need to have those stone altars all along the way that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt because we know God spoke, God took action, and therefore we can trust him, even if we don't understand everything that might be going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, there, there were occasions throughout our life where we knew that God had spoken, and it's a stone altar, and therefore I can look back to that and be at peace, because I know I've continued to live in obedience, and I know it's what God wanted, because that stone altar declares it so clearly. Well, and, and that stone altar for you is also a story for somebody else that they can look at and they can, they can go, I knew this guy, I knew, I knew this couple and this happened to them. And because it happened to them, that has strengthened my faith. Um, and then they can tell, you know, generations to come and, and things like that, um, but yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's yeah, I think I think your your insight is a is really a good one. The church is a body of believers. We're not a bunch of individuals. We are corporate as well as being individual. And 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 uh, we we depend on one another. We need one another, and, and that will always be the case. And we do look to those uh, who have gone through this, and we learn from them. And it does become exactly. As you said, you know, I think that's a really important part about life in Christ and in the body. Um, so now in your, in your role now, you're, you're in the district superintendent role and what are, huh? Oh, I'm sorry. You're in, you're currently in, you, you mentioned all the different roles that you're in right now. But probably the, the main one you would say would be the district superintendent for the Michigan district. Right. Um, right. What, uh, I mean, some, some people listening aren't, aren't Nazarene. They have no clue really how it works. What would be some of the, what are some of the right. things that you do currently in your, in your district superintendent role? Okay. Uh, in the church of the Nazarene, it, it's important to understand our polity structure. Um, we are broken up uh, into uh, areas uh, called districts that will have any number of churches in them. Uh, in the state of Michigan, for example, there are three districts, Michigan District, Eastern Michigan, and Northern Michigan. My district is the Michigan District, and we have roughly 75 churches. As district superintendent, mine is adjudicatory responsibility. I don't go to the same church every Sunday. I'm not a pastor of a church, but I oversee uh, pastors, and and I lead the work of the district in terms of vision casting, strategic planning, uh, working with 
churches in crisis, working with pastors uh, that have needs or are, are in crisis, uh, making sure our churches uh, find God's pastor. We're not congregational in, in the sense that the local church is off on its own. It has to find its own pastor as a denominational structure, a connectional church. Um, my uh, responsibility is to work with the leaders of local churches in the pastoral hunt. I have a network and a, and a means by which I can find potential pastors that they might not be able to. And so those are responsibilities. I oversee um, opportunities for uh, training and education, further education for our, our pastors and for lay people as well with uh, big uh, uh, district events or even events that touch the other two Michigan districts and uh, all of these kinds of things in order to help us uh, to be more effective disciple makers. In fact, as a district superintendent uh, and as a district, I believe our, our task is to help equip uh, local churches and provide resources for local churches to be more effective in their task of making Christ-like disciples in their communities. Sure. So I think just very quickly and broadly, that's a description of, of what I do. Yeah. Well, and I think, too... Now, now remember, I don't do all of that myself. It's a lot of delegating, putting sure. responsibility in the hands of different ones, but I oversee all of that. Yeah, yeah. So, and now... Talking about the discipleship, I, I'm finding more yep. in, as I look into this, and my wife and I just got done just past Wednesday teaching a 13-week discipleship course, and so that was it's been really great. But you had mentioned before, I mean, with um, you know Eugenio Duarte, and you look at that yep. situation, and, and I'm sure many many other situations, but one of the key elements that helped that along helped him along that it seems as though it was a good focus and what you had just mentioned just in your description was discipleship. And I think too often, a lot of times we'll look at discipleship. Number one, we, we won't either won't have it. And, and I'm talking about the church universal, not even just the Nazarene church, but the church universal. Yeah. You, we'll sure. get you saved yeah. and we'll give you a free Bible and then good luck. But we don't take the time to disciple you. And then, yeah. so then we, we pull into question two, is discipleship just education? Because we can have, yeah. we just did a 13 week long course, but in doing that 13 week long course, what we found is we've just, we've just educated them. That's yeah. just a, one aspect of it. But discipleship is a multifaceted thing. And one of the biggest things is, is having an intimate relationship with who you're discipling, having a one-on-one -on -one sort of relationship. And one of my really good friends who uh, is up in Michigan, she defined it perfectly for me, I think. I don't know, and I want to hear what you have to say about this. And I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but it's my show, so I can do that. No, no, okay. but, but she said, Jesus preached to thousands of people, thousands upon thousands, ministered to thousands of people, but he was close with 12. He only yeah. had a close 12 that he was truly intimate with and that yeah. is discipleship um so you i cannot disciple a thousand people yeah no, no you can influence you can impact you can preach to but but it's only a small group who can really that you can really disciple yeah. because it's a matter it's a relationship issue it's pouring yourself into their lives and and uh, and 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 being being able to to speak to where they are and to what their specific uh, needs are and how to help them to help shape them into becoming men and women of God and they in turn have their discipleship group that they then influence. Yeah. You know, you know the perspective you've been talking about is so correct. Just going back to the Great Commission, which is a discipleship commission. You know. The mandate of the Great Commission is to make disciples, yep. not to evangelize, it's not to baptize, it's not to teach and equip. 
Those are ancillary. Those are aspects of it all. Yeah. Obviously, evangelizing is significant. If you don't, if you don't know, if folks aren't being one to Christ, they're never going to be disciples. Yeah. Got no, you know? and so, we've got a great discipleship program, so that, but we don't have anyone to go through it. <laughs> it, it, it yeah, exactly. And then it is important. Baptism is um, is a sacrament, but it is it is an image of incorporation into the body of Christ, and and that's so significant sure. to be related to and connected to the body. But then the, the the other aspect then is an ongoing, continuing one of teaching, equipping, nurturing, shaping, modeling. All of that is uh, is implicit in uh, in uh, teaching them to observe all things. Christ's teaching was yes, he he he, he sat on a rock and would teach, but he also showed them how to do it. He also walked with them. He lived with them and, and, and encountered their lives in profound ways. He demonstrated to them. And that's what our, that's what discipling really must be uh, all about. And in the end, then, having so poured Christ into the hearts and lives of these uh, that I'm discipling, they in turn do the same thing to others, sure. Uh, to their group, and uh, and and that's how that's how the world will be won. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, you know, discipling is only effective if the disciples then become disciple makers. Sure, I I had a, a pastor one time tell me that you need to have a Peter, or I'm sorry, a Paul, a uh, Barnabas, and a Timothy. The Paul is the mentoring figure. The Barnabas yeah. is the guy who doesn't necessarily always agree with you, doesn't see eye to eye, but the end goal is the same. But there might be things that they will maybe butt heads with you about or, you know, you don't necessarily, they're not just going to be a yes man for you. And then the Timothy yeah. is the person that you're pouring your life into. Right. And I, I tell you, that's some of the best advice I've ever got. And, and it's true. And it's, yeah. and that's not just for ministers. That should no, be that should no, be for it, believers it's for as a every whole. Believer. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you know what? I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Um, we have a, a kind of a section on the podcast that we do, and I call it shameless plugs. So, if you have any ministries, any websites, um, anybody, anybody you want to say hi to, anything like that. Um, now would be your time to, you can talk about those as much as you want to. So any, anybody you want to mention or any ministries or websites or anything you want to talk about? No, not, not really. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, just to, to remind folks, keep your life and focus on Christ, not just talk about him, but live like him. Um, God, I, 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 I've got well, we've got camp meeting coming up here <laughs> in July. Well, and, and you're and that's important. You're, if you're in the Michigan area, uh, in, in your website, the minas.org. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And uh, go there, and there's all kinds of neat stuff going on at Indian Lake, our campground. And we're going to have a great, uh, uh, a great camp meeting this year. Uh, Chad Bohai is about your age, a little younger, actually, is one of the evangelists. And um, and uh, Sam Fassel, who's uh, Jamaican, he's pastor of our Bronx Bethany uh, Church, one of our great churches, a great holiness preacher, is on the board of trustees of Nazarene Theological Seminary. Tom Noble, who is one of our premier theologians, is coming from Scotland to, uh, to be our to be our Bible teacher. He's got a great new book that I'd give a plug for, and that's entitled Holy Trinity, Holy People. I'd encourage uh, anybody to get that and read it, especially those who are pastors. It's a, a tremendous book. So it's going to be uh, a tremendous camp meeting, and that's uh, July 13th and 19th. 
and uh, at Indian Lake, which is near Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, in Vicksburg, Michigan, and uh, I give a good plug to that. I guess I guess that's well. You know what? The Children's Aid Fund. It's yeah. not a religious organization. It's not a a, a, a church uh, organization. It's just run the way Jesus would run something. Its leaders are very strong Christians. And uh, based there in, uh, in D.C., uh, the leaders of Children's uh, Aid Fund are some of the most um, prominent consultants to the uh, leadership in, in the United States government when it comes to the issue of HIV-AIDS and certainly from the Christian perspective. So it's a great organization. You might want to pray for that. Absolutely. Well, and, and what we'll do is we'll include all of that information, you know, websites, things like that. We'll include that in the episode information. Uh, we encourage everyone who's listening to please go and check that out. Um, great, great things, uh, especially if you're in the Michigan area. Uh, go to Indian Lake Campground. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, pretty awesome place to go to and stuff. It sounds like you have some great speakers yeah. lined up and some great reading yeah. material as well. So, well, thanks again. I, we appreciate it so much for you joining us from your car. Um, man, it's, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, we, we love you, Nick, and uh, thank the world of you. God bless you. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks for listening in today. Don't forget to check us out online at LegacyHelms.org or any of our other platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Player FM. Please subscribe and write a review for us. We want to hear what you have to say. If you need t-shirts for your next big event, we've got you covered. Visit us on the website and click on the t-shirt quote page under t-shirts. If you would like Nick or Kendra to preach at your next retreat, revival, or camp, fill out the contact us form online under preaching. If you want to send us an email and get in contact with us, please do so and send it to LegacyHelms at gmail.com. And as always, remember, don't let your meat loaf or your mop flop.